back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy that you have decided to spend a little bit of your day with us. Today, we're going to talk about the eternal wild versus farm debate, and that is a debate that has existed on land since, oh, I think uh, Jacob and Esau, is it? Back in uh, biblical times, but on the water, this is a brand new debate, relatively speaking. We have only really had real deal fish, aquaculture, farmed fishing that is anything other than a pond in the backyard for really only about 60 or 70 years. And so I'm going to be talking today with Barton Seaver. He is one of the nation's foremost experts on all things fish, and he's a friend of mine, and he's a great cookbook author as well. He and I are going to talk about the pluses, the minuses, the challenges, and the successes of fish farming versus wild food and why they can both coexist and why they have to coexist. So let's take it away without further ado. Martin Seaver, welcome to Hunt Together Talk podcast. I am very happy to hear your voice having, God, not, we haven't seen each other in, Lord, what is it, like six or seven years? I think so. Yeah, it's nice to reconnect. Yeah, yeah. And you're up in Maine now, right? Yes, we live on the ragged, jagged, delicious coast here. Life is good. But it's we're, the way it should be, I believe. The, uh, the where beaches goes. are rocks. <laughs> yes, where beaches can hurt you. So, <laughs> so for people out there who don't know, Barton Seaver uh, may or may not, and, and I'm leaning towards may, the nation's top dog when it comes to fish and seafood uh, geekery and cookery. Uh <laughs> You have written a number of pretty amazing books, and I am super biased about my own books so that when I say that you've written really amazing, like, you know, better books, these are like, this is no, this is no small thing. And American seafood, I think, is in my opinion, tops among them. Um, if you were to ever top the great, uh, is it AJ McLean? Yes, yes. Yes. AJ McLean. Yes, A.J. McLean's Fish, which is a book that I stole from my dad when I was in my 20s. Uh, and I still have this beat up old copy from like, I don't know, maybe it was published maybe the 1970s or something like that. Uh, and your book, American Seafood, is about the same size and it is every bit, if not more, interesting because it's been updated in the last, what, 30 years since that book was written. And it's, it's kind of a monument. Um, and you've written other really great general cookbooks and you've written one of my favorite of all time fish cookbooks a book called two if by sea um which is uh also all of these are available wherever fine books are sold by the way um but you went to the culinary institute didn't you not i did yeah started off in this whole wild trajectory uh and you know in the kitchens yeah, you went so to yeah, call, so you, yeah. so you went to Hogwarts and <laughs> <laughs> precisely where my totally Hogwarts toed, toed the line, <laughs> sharpened my knives. Yes, and then you were in uh, in general kind of restaurant trade, uh, focusing kind of on Spanish food for most of your career, and that was around. Well, you're a DC native, aren't you? I am. Yeah, born and raised right in the heart, smack dab in downtown, and uh, I was traveling around after culinary school, and just Spanish cuisine was the it thing with you know Ferran Adria and molecular gastronomy, et cetera. And then I fell in with uh, Jose Andres and ran uh, one of his flagship restaurants for a while. So yeah, Spanish. Super impressive. Super impressive. Like I think I knew that you were an authority when we first met in Alaska to go fishing, 
but I didn't quite realize that you were like super white coat at the time. I thought you were like, oh, yeah, it's a good guy who knows how to fish and he's a good damn cook. So I kind of walked into our relationship blissfully ignorant. Yeah, I prefer it that way. I'm just a cook at heart, really. That's I know. It. I mean, I think a lot of us, especially those of us of a certain age, which is to say over the age of 40, um, we've done this so many years and in so many places and we've seen so many trends go up and down. Like ultimately all of the best chefs really are just cooks. Yeah. And one of the great sort of unfortunate circumstances of restaurant and quite frankly, in so many trades uh, and careers is that the more quote unquote successful you get, the less of what you actually love to do, you get to do. Um, and that was part of the deciding factor in me actually ended up leaving restaurants and, and pursuing other interests is that I was managing, not cooking. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, while that is a certainly a skill set and, and a beautiful thing when done right and, and when you empower people uh, and support them, but it wasn't that hands on tasting the lemons, cutting the fish, diving into the blue fish, you know, just. When I'm elbows deep in bluefish is when I'm happiest, always. <laughs> now I know you're from the Northeast. <laughs> I actually am going to do an episode entirely on unloved fish, and bluefish will definitely be in that bucket because there are legions of people who hate on that fish, and I think they're all wrong. Well, I'll give them some credit. Bluefish, uh, like I said in, in American Seafood that you were so kind to introduce uh, with admiration there, um, there is no such thing as bad bluefish, but there is once glorious bluefish poorly treated. And when poorly treated, it can, 100%. Treat, it can treat the eater poorly as well. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's true. I mean, when, when you're a little younger than I am, but you probably still remember the age when we would fill literally garbage cans. And I'm not talking about the garbage can in your kitchen. I'm talking about the one that is outside your house full of bluefish. No, never blood, never bled, never gutted. Just thrown in there with no ice, just sitting on the back of the deck, and then we come home and distribute them around the neighborhood and wonder why people didn't want them. Yeah, well, it's a damn scombroid fish too. I mean, it's like, yeah, I just anyway. Yes, <laughs> only once glorious bluefish mystery poorly treated. True, That's what true. I hold it, hold it evident. Well, the topic of the day, and and I wanted to talk with somebody who really knew their stuff for this one because it is a big topic and it's a topic that has a lot of misinformation about it. And that is the issue of wild versus farmed. So there are a lot of sort of Uber issues that are going around between the wild versus farm debate within the seafood world. I would argue pretty much everyone who actually uses a hook and line will say that, you know, wild fish are better except for like weird geeks like us who kind of know the ins and outs of the farm fishery. We're going to get into the those examples in a minute. And then every salmon eater I know who's not from the Pacific Northwest, with few exceptions, are like, well, I really kind of like the Atlantic salmon. It's fattier. And that's all farm. Uh, and then you have everything in between. So let's start at the beginning. Fish farming and aquaculture is super old. Um, super old. I mean, I think, I think it goes back to the Egyptians, if not somewhat later than that. I know the Romans used to raise fish in ponds to eat. There's been this kind of small scale, like lords and dukes would have their, their, you know, quasi farms in medieval period and, and then so on and so forth. But do you have any idea of when the 
notion of fish farming or aquaculture as we currently know it began? I do. Uh, and you're right to point out that aquaculture is an ancient uh, undertaking uh, from the Hawaiian Islands and Captain Cook discovering the pond structures there to China, Egypt, beyond Romans. You're right. But from an international or from a global economic standpoint, from it being a, a commodity market, it was only introduced about 55 years ago, which makes it about as old as an industry as computers. Hmm. Um, you know, just to put it in perspective. So we're talking uh, the 1960s. Yeah, late 60s, really, uh, was when the first net pens went into the water in Norway, subsequently Washington State, Maine, uh, you know, areas that have a lot of geographical, geological features in, in common. Um, and trout ponds and catfish ponds, carp ponds have, have a long history uh, in America, especially in Europe, um, but really as a globalized trade. Uh, that's when it went from being self-sustenance, ponds, backyard operations to community operations to being international operations. Interesting. So so I would not have expected that the salmon industry would have kind of started it. I would have expected southern catfish to be older than that. Well, southern catfish had the great sort of benefit of having let the salmon industry do all the learning for it. Uh, ah. Catfish didn't really start until the early 1980s, and I think really? its, its growth was exponential. I mean, over and over exponentially, uh, you know, into the early 90s when it really peaked and bloomed. And, um, you know, but it's a fascinating industry, and it speaks into this, you know, I think a larger narrative of you know, should we be eating fish at all? Um, <laughs> it's a really big topic, man. You know, it's sort of, I mean, it gets, it gets you quickly into what is man's place upon this planet and how sure. shall we leave our legacy? So. For sure. So, uh, whole sea spiracy reference aside, um, which I don't necessarily want to get into in this podcast. Like, if you are a regular person listening to this podcast, where are you most likely to find farmed fish and seafood? Like, in terms of species, and, and obviously it's likely going to be at your supermarket. Yeah, you're going to find it absolutely everywhere uh, and completely intermixed within seafood cuisine. Bottom line is globally more than 50%, almost about 55% of all the seafood we eat globally is farmed. Huh. Uh, I, did, I didn't now, know it was that high. Now, the majority, I think about 60% or about 55% of global seafood produced is wild, but that includes forage fish, things that are milled down into cosmeceutical, nutraceutical, bioceutical, pharmaceutical, uh, you know, applications. It, that includes like Menhaden is what you're talking about, right? Yes, Menhaden, everybody's least favorite fish that we should be eating. And we can <laughs> side, little side note. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's like because um, I have yeah. never been able to make Menhaden not taste like stinky mackerel. <laughs> yes, yes. Well. That is a topic for another time, I think. I mean, yeah, it's the like people ask me about the what's the fish that defeats you? Shupik is one, and Menhaden is another. Those are challenging fish to cook. Yeah, yes, I'm in 100% agreement with you on that. Um, so where are you going to find salmon category very specifically? Right. Uh, as you Shrimp. mentioned, the Atlantic salmon. Uh, 
has become so prevalent in the marketplace, uh, but not ultimately to the detriment of the wild species uh, from an economic standpoint, given that the, the market for salmon is growing greater than at a greater clip than production. Um, you certainly see it in the whitefish trade where you have catfish and attendant species, swai, bassa, tra, um, all sold under the name Pangasis. Uh, oh, interesting. You know, so Pangasis, is Pangasis a real name or is it a market name? That is a real name. That is a species uh, sort of uh, context into which these other species fall. You know, and if you look at the top 10 seafoods consumed in America, Pangasis and catfish, which due to trade law must be sold under separate name, uh, but really are the same category, uh, you, you know, of fish. Um, meaning you're not going to have pangasis and catfish on your menu. Um, you'd have one or the other because they're enough similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the uh, America's fourth most consumed seafood, and almost all of it is going to be farmed. A huge majority of it. Uh, when you're looking at tilapia, that's nearly 100% farmed, with the exception the of a very- soylent green of fish. <laughs> ah, the 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 bad reputation fish which has outliers within its production that are producing really very compelling products. We you are correct. You are correct. I actually know a guy who does small-scale tilapia farming in Tennessee, and uh, I know guys who catch them in the Gulf Coast and in Florida, mm-hmm. and they're actually quite good when you catch them when they're actually living their best lives. Uh, it's just like when they're eating like other fish's poop for a living, it's, it's, less, it's less awesome. That, you know, that could be said of anything, really, uh, <laughs> yeah. from chicken to pork to, I mean, everything in our world. Uh, and just like with any industry, there are going to be, you know, those who are cut rate doing it at the bottom rung uh, and those who are who are trying to lead. Uh, and aquaculture has that incredible disparity amongst uh, you know producers within it. But then other, also other farm species that you're talking, I mean, if you've eaten an oyster in America in the past decade, very, very likely, I mean, 92% or something like that of America's oyster consumption is coming from farms. And that's a very good thing. So. Mussels too. Mussels, clams, uh, increasingly so scallops, now kelp. I mean, it's, it's such an exciting industry, Hank. (laughs) <laughs> the last time we got to invent a food system was 10,000 years ago when we planted the seeds of modern agriculture and society therefrom. Uh, you know, yes, of course, there have been revolutions in agriculture since, but like the fact that we are moving into an entirely new ecology of food production um, is is really exciting. It's really fraught with a lot of social, emotional, economic sort of elephants in the room uh, mm-hmm. to deal with, but it's also you know, this really compelling opportunity, and I said earlier, sort of through which to talk about these very large issues of like, how do we feed people? Why do we feed people? What do we feed people? Um, you know, what are food economies supposed to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of that is really at the surface with aquaculture uh, in a way that I think is not as present in other food system conversations. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, which is eFish. 
eFish delivers fresh, never-frozen, wild, American-caught dayboat seafood right to your doorstep. These guys have supplied seafood for every Michelin three-star restaurant in the country and even the Pope, and now they're shipping to you listeners. What's unique about eFish is that they don't have a warehouse full of fish. They simply connect you straight to the source. This means that in most cases, your product is still swimming when you place your order. Their business operates the same way I order fish for my fishermen friends across the country. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. eFish takes an incredibly personable approach to purchasing seafood online. If you aren't sure exactly what you're looking to purchase, they are more than happy to help with recommendations and pass on their wealth of knowledge about seafood and the products they are selling. With eFish, you can always be sure that your fish is ethically sourced, never treated with chemicals, and is handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. If you want fresh seafood for your next dinner, check out eFish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get 10% off your first order with my code, Hunt, gather, talk again, and that is e-fish.com. Well, let's start with extremes and work our way back towards some of the little bit more interesting and, 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 you know, grayish areas. So let's start with, okay, so you just mentioned it. And I would argue, and I think you may agree, that if you were to say that there is an area of, of the farmed fish, the aquaculture industry, that is, if not 100% awesome in terms of, you know, in all kinds of respects, if not 100%, then real damn close to it, you would talk about shellfish, like oysters and mussels and clams. Um, So I'll tell you, all I know is that, A, from a cook's perspective, they're cleaner. You don't have to do beard mussels. Uh, The oysters are nice and separated. And as a guy who picks wild oysters uh, here in California, you basically need to shuck them on the beach and put them into a container because they're all stuck on rocks. And so that is something that the consumer doesn't even know because chances are uh, that wild oyster was raised in a a net pen. Um, Clams, like all of these things, and I guess that not only are they cleaner from a cook standpoint, they tend to be a bit more universal in size, um, so you don't have the big giant giant oyster. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh yes, and uh, which really ought to be barbecued. Um, and then the other piece to that, and this is kind of the other bit of what I mean by when I say awesome, is that because shellfish are filter feeders, they actually improve the water in which they live. So. The only downside that I am aware of with aquaculture of bivalves like this, and you're going to tell me where if there's others, is that you have an issue in a place like the Chesapeake where the uh, farmers want to raise the Pacific uh, oyster, the Chrysostria, Gygas, or the other ones that live out here versus the Virginica oyster, which is the native Chesapeake oyster because the, the Chesapeake oyster doesn't grow as fast. It's a little bit more temperamental. And so there's been these wars in among the watermen in the Chesapeake over which you can grow and there's legislation. And I'm guessing that that's never been resolved because I used to do politics in that area for many years and it was a constant battle. But on the whole, there's not a lot of downside in terms of bivalve aquaculture unless I'm wrong. Now, you're absolutely right. It is overwhelmingly a positive presence to have a bivalve aquaculture operation 
on the water and for them to proliferate uh, exponentially so. Uh, in my first book, Forgotten Country, I forthright stated that it is environmentalism on the half shell to eat a farm-raised mussel clam or oyster. You are improving water quality. You are creating economic opportunity in hard-hit maritime economies. You are furthering and enabling the culture of rural maritime America. You are helping to improve those waterways. You are eating delicious, healthy for you seafood. Uh, all of this on the half shell with a six pack of beer and a shot of Tabasco on the side. Like, hot damn, man. Right. Like, what a shift in the typical, you know, narrative of environmentalism, which is bad human bad, give up and sacrifice all that you hold dear. It's like, <laughs> no, man, go for it. Oh, you want a dozen oysters? How about two? You know, yep. it's the only food that I recommend outright overconsumption of. Uh, I mean, just I consider it our patriotic duty to eat as many farm-raised shellfish as we can. Full stop. So, <laughs> say, all right, good. At least I correctly identified like uh, what I in my mind is always that if you're out there listening to this and you're like, again, because you, you totally nailed it with the. Typical environment, especially around seafood, is mm -hmm. there's a, a specter of guilt that surrounds seafood for quite a lot of people. I mean, I even get twinges of it now and again, depending on if I'm in a restaurant or whatever. But this is the case where flip the script and eat as many as you can and many as you can afford. Now, I want to take a little bit of a side note before we continue with this is typically, and you know better than I do, we're talking uh, cohogs, so, you know, the mercenaria mercenaria, the East Coast, you know, hardshell clam, which is, depending on its size, is either a little neck, a top neck, a cherry stone, or a chowder. You're talking them. You're talking blue mussels, you know, your typical mussel that you'd see in a store. Uh, you're talking all the sort of little sub-varieties of oysters that are everywhere. Um, I think they farm manila clams in some places. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned scallops. I'm not familiar with farmed scallops. It's a technology and culture that's been developed in Japan uh, with the Hokkaido lantern scallops. Oh, that and big these, ass scallop. These are, okay, yeah. These are bags, these mesh bags that are hung in the top of the water column, and they look like kind of Chinese lanterns, um, mm -hmm. you know, in that sort of, you know, expandable way and they're just they're beautiful and they hang in the water column and maine is now pioneering the introduction of that technology to these waters uh and it's being used as part of oftentimes as part of what's called integrated multi-trophic aquaculture so got geeky on ya. There you go. <laughs> um integrated multi-trophic aquaculture meaning not monoculture oh okay. so they might raise salmon in a net pen around which they might have muscle ropes hanging and scallop uh, racks hanging. And then around of that, they might have kelp lines hanging. And then underneath all of this, there might be sea cucumbers being ranched. So in no this way, way, people are ranching sea cucumbers. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, hey, there's a market for them. They're worth a lot of money. And they're actually quite beneficial to the environment in that they play this essential ecosystem role of cleaning up the detritus of the system. Ah, yeah, I guess you're right. So I mean, they're, they're the, the cleanup crew underneath the salmon pens. Yeah. And I don't mean cleanup crew in the way that like 
oh, they just scoop up the poop. Like, no, that's not what they do. Any natural system that is in balance you know, has inputs, but also outputs. And integrated multitrophic aquaculture is a means to minimize the inputs, meaning we have to put the salmon there, we have to feed the salmon, we have to arrange for the mussels to be there, the scallops and the kelp, but a lot of that is self-seeding and we have to devise which species work with which so that the nutrient offload is all managed by the system. Interesting. It, any, any of you who have ever read Omnivore's Dilemma and the Joel Salatin model of mm -hmm. you know, cattle farming, this is it. This is the prairie system. This is any natural ecology, <laughs> natural ecology, listen to that misnomer, um, <laughs> You know, any ecology where checks and balances are in play. And that's what integrated multitrophic aquaculture is, is, is human ingenuity designing from nature's lessons. It's corned beans and squash for sea critters. There you go. That's a much simpler way of putting it than my 10 minute. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I was a newspaper reporter, so that's our job is to like. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my ex-wife was a medical writer. And she would come home from work and she would just laugh because some doctor would be like, yeah, what we're talking about is blah, 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 blah. And Jen would be like, oh, you mean neck pain? She's like, yeah, but it's a specific kind of neck pain. I get it. I get it. I'll write that. Yeah. <laughs> when you devote yourself to the details, the details matter. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. oh, that's totally, true. totally true. All right. So to continue on that vein. Uh, I got most of the big ones, right? Are there any kind of other um, bivalves, I guess, that are being farmed that are on the market? Uh, here, here, I guess, is what I'm talking about, North America. Aquaculture is such an exciting industry, uh, and, and venture capital is starting to get involved uh, as well. I think more exciting, way more exciting than that. What's really is that universities are getting involved. Uh, because young people are seeing this as a really virtuous new industry opportunity. Hmm. And so we're beginning to see people experimenting with so many different species that, uh, you know, at the outset of aquaculture, you know, you said you were a little surprised that it was salmon that was the Trojan fish. Well, it's because there was a market for salmon and you could sell salmon at a premium. Ah. You know, don't start with the thing that you have to a figure out how to make and then figure out how to sell. No, <laughs> build towards an existing market. But now there's opportunity that people are finding to really innovate towards conch farming, oh, sea okay. cucumber farming, urchin farming, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hank, we are so new into this nascent industry, this nascent effort of human beings understanding and harnessing that you know maritime life cycles you know marine animal life cycles and harnessing that for food production in a farmed way that the pace of innovation and discovery and in a introduction of new species is growing so quickly um you know i think globally right now there's maybe 100 20, 140 species that are farmed to any commercial extent. Hmm. And that happens only in about, I think, 17 countries. Uh, oh, wow. So just the incredible potential um, 
for both small scale and large scale aquaculture is really exciting. And, you know, think about how many generations of selective breeding it's taken us to get from, you know, the auroch, the long descended relative of the Holstein cow, all the way down to today's, you know, dairy cow. Right, right. I mean, you think cow. about if you think about the, from a hunting perspective, like the if you want to know what cows used to be like, go to Africa and meet the Cape buffalo, the world's largest, most pissed off cow. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and it's taken us how many generations of chicken to get down to the broiler, for better yeah. or for worse. Let, let's yeah, be so clear. <laughs> but the fact is that we're on generation like fifty of salmon, um, and this is selective breeding. I mean, this is Gregor Mendelian. Mm-hmm. You know, just picking the best peas out of the garden kind of, you know, science application here. So the level, the low hanging fins, does that work, of opportunity <laughs> in aquaculture uh, are great. But, you know, I do also I do want to get back to, like, should we be doing this at all? Um, you know, should we be present on the ocean? Because that is the precursor to all of this exuberance on my mm-hmm. part. Ask away. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to get an argument for me. I mean, I've been fishing since before you were born. Um, should I lead into this in a way that is a little more editable? <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Um, chances are everyone listening to this has no doubt that we should be on the water. Um, but convince those who don't believe it. We have a world of growing population, uh, as we well know, that is putting incredible stress and an incredible number of different stressors upon the natural systems upon which we rely. Uh, we're seeing and beginning to better understand limitations of our terrestrial footprint and the barriers to our health, economic growth, cultural preservation. Uh, that we are coming up against with terrestrial farming and human desires versus human needs versus what the world can provide. Uh, in an era where we face a lot of these questions with grave moral consequence, the opportunity to look to the ocean, to a blue economy, as not a savior, but as a very rational means to derive good answers to those quandaries uh, is upon us. And, you know, the oceans represent more than 70% of our planet's surface. It's over 99% of the livable space on this planet is on or underwater. Um, and so as we ask ourselves about limitations, well, we should think about the whole, right? And that doesn't mean we should just go plunder the whole in ways that we have done on land. Um, and see, and, uh, and, <laughs> you've done quite and, a bit of sea plundering. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so this is my exuberance is not without caution or without realism, of the errors that we have made. Um, but it's a question of culture really when it comes down to it. I think that, you know, if you ask the average American to close their eyes and picture the small American family farm, you know, American Gothic immediately comes into our mind's eye 
we can see the gently undulating hills patterned with perfectly planted corn undulating off into autumn splendor setting sun, the red barn paint fading, white farmhouse paint chipping, picket fence, you know, like we get it. Damn it. This is the, the thread by which the fabric of America has been woven. We even sing about it. The Amber I was just going to say, we can just, plane. we can, we can get this a lot easier by just like, just cue any John Cougar Mellencamp song. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we fundamentally get that and we think land cultured for our presence there. We find it improved for our presence there. Um, we find it beautiful for our presence there. But you ask somebody to, to picture, you know, a fishery or a water farm or aquaculture. And as I've written, you might stand on that dock and gaze wistfully out at the wine dark sea and think as though a fishery is something that happens beyond the horizon of our attentions executed by someone else somewhere other uh, you know we don't see ourselves reflected in that um, and therefore we see the ocean as beautiful for our absence there but for the day trips we might make you know with our hook and line but for the excursions to the shore for our lobster roll and the salty sea breeze that bowls us over like the romance we all seek in our lives and, you know it's just like we go there but we think of it as other and that notion of like expanding the human footprint in a positive, rational way onto the ocean is a great cultural shift that is upon us. Um, and I think it begs us to consider our place, but also to consider the opportunity that we have. I think there's a piece to this, too, that I've always I've always thought about this, well, at least in my whole adult life, which is now getting long in the years, um, is that. The presence of successful and not damaging fish farming is necessary for non-anglers to be able to eat fish because as there are more and more human beings on this earth, there are twice as many humans on this planet as there were the day I was born, which is pretty amazing and I have just turned 50 because I'm not even old yet and this is – it's like Agent Smith was right. Uh, and if you get that reference, you get extra points. Um, but in order for us to deal with this, we can't fish the way we fished in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s because we will fish out the oceans. So wild fisheries are necessarily going to have to be tightly managed. And part of that comes with gear restrictions. And part of that comes with uh, just a simple fact that good wild fish uh, are going to be more along the Copper River model than it is among the Long John Silver's model. Like, in the future, and it's already happening, good wild fish is going to be expensive, period, end of story. So for John Q. Public, who makes minimum wage or, or slightly above or whatever, whatever, who can't or don't doesn't want to afford $20 or $30 a pound seafood, fish farming is the way to go. Agreed. And wild fishing can be sustainable. And, sure, uh, you know, but it, it's you still not going to be cheap in the sense of like a, a McDonald's <laughs> fish burger thing. And you know, it, there's a lot of information flying around. Seaspiracy recently, you know, really fuddled the conversation. Yeah. I, I think irresponsibly so. The bottom line, I'm not one of those people that screams at you to go do your research, but I would <laughs> ask that uh, visit the University of Washington's School of Fisheries website. Look up Ray Hilborn. This is best in class, peer reviewed, real science here, um, that showcases 
how over 60% of the world's fisheries are sustainably managed, and that represents 78% of all of the fish that's caught in the wild is caught from sustainable sources. Is there a lot of work to be done on the oceans in terms of environmental sustainability, human rights? Absolutely. And pollution? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean the whole category is villainized. So that's a good segue to the second half of the extreme bit that I wanted to talk about. So when I think about fish farming being, you know, as close as I think there is to real evil, my first thought is Southeast Asian shrimp farming. And so I hate Southeast Asian shrimp, uh, not only for reasons of patriotism. You know, the United States is some of the best shrimp in the world. And if you're not willing to spend an extra $3 a pound for it, well, go pound sand. Um, but in my mind, this is just me talking, Southeast Asian shrimp is the closest thing to the devil in fish farming that we have. Tell me I'm wrong. I think you're right to be angry about it in general. Uh, but I also do think that the more helpful – I think vantage point is that, yes, that is an area, a hot spot of depredation and concern and human rights abuses and everything that's wrong. And within that category, there are people that are leading us the way out of it. Um, I'm not saying that you should forego your delicious American wild caught shrimp. Like, man, that's your choice. But the common narrative, I think, about aquaculture is that it has been easy to villainize categorically. And, you know, I'm not a huge supporter of Southeast Asian shrimp. I don't seek it out, but I do acknowledge that there are best-in-class producers there. And I also acknowledge that it is an important economy there uh, that you, the listener, you, Hank, may or may not choose to support, but that it does have important bearing on the region. And I think this is a, a very key point about aquaculture, which is however much I will hold it accountable as well as evangelize for it, I also admit and acknowledge that not all aquaculture belongs in all places. You know, and the Pacific Northwest being a perfect example of this, that to take a salmon farm and plop it into the middle of an ocean that has sustained native and indigenous populations for eons. I mean, through a transubstantiation that I am salmon, salmon is me, the trees, the bears, the forest, we are one. And for me to come in and say, yeah, but I want to open a salmon farm here, it's like, that's slightly inappropriate. It's actually very inappropriate. Well, it's even more inappropriate that they're raising Atlantics in the Pacific. Well, that (laughs) I would agree with you to some extent on that. I won't, however, condemn all aspects of it because it is up for the community there to decide. It would be just as wrong for me to say it belongs there as it would be for me to blanket statement, say, to an indigenous population that may want that there to say that it's inappropriate. Um, and so, like all things, we just need to be mindful of that community inclusion and in fact, community prevalence and prominence in the decision-making process. And that gets down to you know, where does aquaculture live? Well, it should live where it is wanted. Uh, it should be innovated in the hubs where it makes sense, where the community there welcomes it and understands its social license, meaning the values and virtues that it brings. Um, 
And in this way, we begin to dismantle the constructs of the wild versus farmed false narrative uh, and begin to see that seafood is a vital, necessary, relevant part of our economic, cultural and health futures, uh, that both forms of wild and farmed belong on our tables, given your own personal choices, but at least belong in the list of options available to us. Hey, everybody. A quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Outdoorsmen, hunters, and anglers have trusted Filson for unfailing goods since the 1897 Alaskan Gold Rush. Available in retail stores right now, Filson dry bag totes, duffels, and backpacks will keep your gear dry no matter how wet the conditions. And while you're there, be sure to check out their waterproof Skagit jacket and cap. They're built for fishing in the nastiest weather. When the sun comes out, Filson's Twin Lakes shirts, barrier neck gaiter, and angler caps will keep you cool and prevent painful sunburns. See it all at filson.com. So um, how do you make those choices? So this is a thing that comes up a lot with salmon, especially mm-hmm. salmon. Um, you see it with tilapia too, uh, and you see it with shrimp. So because there is some farm shrimp in the United States, not a lot, but there's a little. Um, so if I'm a consumer, if I'm any person listening to this, and I want to do the right thing, and I have this vague notion, and this is – I actually fall myself into this category and, and when I'm thinking about Atlantic salmon, which I, I'll be honest. Uh, there's no reason for me to ever eat Atlantic salmon because I live mm-hmm. in the Pacific. Um, but if I were to buy Atlantic salmon, you know, 99.9999% is going to be farmed. Like unless you are somehow up in like the Bay of Fundy or Iceland or someplace like that, you are lucky enough to get a wild Atlantic salmon – uh, treat it like the absolute lottery prize that it is. But most things, most Atlantic salmon are going to be farmed. So that said, we all know that there are salmon farms that are pretty shitty for the environment. Yet I think there's an increasing awareness that there are an increasing number of people who are trying to fix that problem. How do you know how to support those people versus the bad actors? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a lot of information, a lot of disinformation, and a lot of uh, inaccurate at times uh, pro-aquaculture information that's out there. Uh, there's a number of different sources. Of course, there's the Monterey Bay Seafood, Monterey Bay Farms Seafood Watch Program. Uh, I'm particularly fond of both the Aquaculture Stewardship Council as well as the Best Aquaculture Practices certification logos. That if you see those on the package or on you know associated with the product that those are coming from rigorous third-party audited farms and supply chains uh, that go all the way back to the feed, through the processing, human rights, et cetera. Um, you know, there's some very meaningful, very vetted, valid pathways by which information can flow to us. Uh, you know, if you have access and a relationship to a chef who thinks about this, uh, who can act as a funnel of information for you, uh, by all means, you know, hey, chef, is there a farm salmon that you have on your menu? And if she says, yeah, I support Quarry Arctic uh, or I support this land-based research system, uh, whatever it is, like find those products to champion, um, find those products that you are comfortable with. And, you know, Hank, like I get it, man. I agree with you. Like if you're in the Pacific Northwest, farmed Atlantic salmon just isn't relevant to you. Like I, I get that. Um, 
And so, you know, a big part of this is also, you know, finding what is that cultural entry point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just going to get a piece of farm salmon, even if you've done all the research to find the right one and you're going to put it on your plate and you're going to say, blah, meh, this just doesn't live up to the expectations of having gone out and fished with Hank Shaw and pulled this fish one at a time from the gill net and seen its life and the essence of life aquatic itself gifted to us in this beautiful silver bright. Ah! <laughs> like if the Atlantic salmon doesn't do that for you, man, I get it. I get it. It's never going to do it for you. Um, so that's why I'm saying like, it's not enough to just look at the environmental impacts, but, but also our culture, our individual unique cultures and where that product fits on our family's dinner table, because that matters. Because ultimately that's what you're supporting is this larger narrative. I did just think of another area where I could throw the pitchforks and, and torches. Elvers. It's kind of a quasi wild thing that happens in the East Coast where people will gather baby eels and they will ship them to typically Japan where they are farmed for unagi. And it is absolutely wrecking our eel populations on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So that would be an example where like, yeah, that needs to stop. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting thing. The economy of that. I mean, if I could, uh, you know, push back some trees, uh, couple dozen yards from my house, I could see Elver operations in action right now. Um, it, it's an interesting thing when you get into these hot economies like this. Uh, you know, it's a tough thing because it's not this huge industry that's relevant to everybody. It's Unagi. It's very small portions. It's this highly carbon intensive you know, food that travels across the world a couple of times in different forms. To me, I tapped into a, a local eel farm. That's closed the life cycle that is doing everything right here in Maine, uh, American Unagi. Like, man, okay, problem solved. Here you go. If you've really got a hankering for Unagi, there you go, folks. Look her up. Sarah Rademacher is doing this incredible work around this, who saw this problem in her own backyard, said, I know how to create a solution for it and did it, and thus deserves our appreciation and I think support. You know, and then there's also really great people who are making Unagi out of eggplant that uh, you'd be hard pressed to not enjoy thoroughly. You know, even if you don't say like, wow, this is Unagi analog complete 100%. If you don't enjoy it, there's something, you know, like it's weird because it's absolutely delicious. So <laughs> I kind of hate eggplants, it, but, but Becky Selinga, you know who Becky Selinga is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's I a great chef. Her. I admire her. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah, she's she's up in the Pacific Northwest, and she's got a cookbook called Good Fish, and mm-hmm. she's got a banging recipe for unagi that you can pretty much do with any reasonably fatty fish. So she does it with uh, sable fish, also known as black cod. Um, but the other fish that I've done this with that is just dynamite is freshwater drum. And mm-hmm. all everybody living in the Midwest is going to be like, oh, my God, you can't eat this fish. I'm like, of course you can. Um one of the things about freshwater drum that freaks people out is because it's kind of oily. It's perfect for this. Dogfish, so, I mean, another one. Uh, dog, uh, dog, I don't know that dogs are that fatty, but are they, does it work? It does. Huh. Sucker fish as well. Oh, yeah. Suckers for sure. R- remoras. Remoras do beautiful. As in, I've as, never as done in, that. with. I've never done anything with a remora. I've just remor- stuck them to the side so- of the deck and then took a picture and threw them over. Yeah, remoras, man. They're absolutely – got to get the shark suckers or the marlin suckers, the whale suckers, you know, something big enough to work with. 
the only fish that I know of that you really kind of need to cook twice, like poach it once to get some of that fat out, and, and then you can go forth and cook it. Like they're absolutely delicious. You should read about it. I wrote a book about it. <laughs> just, I'm just saying. Just saying. Must have missed that entry. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk tuna. Uh, Let's everybody talk loves tuna. everybody loves tuna. And I love tuna and I usually catch my tuna. You know, I know a little bit about tuna farming. I know that there's this thing called tuna ranching, which is not really actually farming. It's these bizarro open water pens in the middle of the ocean where they got tuna swimming around and around and around. And they do this by capturing little baby tuna and they raise them up, kind of like what we were just talking about with elvers. But I had heard that there was a guy in Australia who managed to actually figure out how to raise them from an egg. Um, but that was some years ago and I'm not really, I'm not really familiar with the current state of like, where are we with farm tuna? Does it, does farm tuna exist and can you even buy it in the United States? Uh, farm tuna does exist. Uh, yes, you can buy it in the United States. They're farming bluefin. Uh, you're right. They did close the life cycle on that. So raising in captivity, uh, hatching, rearing, uh, in captivity, which was uh, quite a feat. Uh, I gotta say also that bluefin is such an outlier in terms of its price potential and its market that it almost doesn't categorize as seafood. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it does from, from a culinary perspective, yes, but there is just absolutely nothing else like it in terms of the pageantry, the infrastructure, the criteria around it. No other fish in the world sells for $3 million a fish, which is, admittedly a gimmick uh, around New Year's uh, in Skiji Market in Japan. But bottom line is that economy is sort of so distinct and separate. Um, it would be like, no, I can't even come up with a metaphor between diamonds and gravel, but like it, it's just not realistic to pair the two together. Um, is it, I mean, and all of this to say, is it relevant to us? Not really. Uh so you'll only yeah. see farmed bluefin tuna in fancy sushi places. Yeah, but here's the thing. There are Marine Stewardship Council certified wild bluefin tuna fisheries sure, where you here live. on the East Coast. Yeah, and I mean, they are the result of years and years of pounding the shit out of fishermen to do things right, you know, in these international treaties, et cetera, and fishermen listening, heeding the oh, God, funny doing story. the right thing, sacrificing doing the right thing year after year to the point where these things have come back and we recognize that they should be first in line. And now I think it's our patriotic duty to support these bluefin fisheries. So it's like, why even bother with farmed? So funny story. Shining example. So we both know Tony Moss and we both know mm -hmm. Linda Greenlaw. Uh, so I am doing a book dinner at Tony Moss's place, Craigie on Maine. God, it's almost 10 years ago, I think. And one of the dishes that Tony served was Linda's bluefin, like harpooned bluefin, like one at a time mm -hmm. kind of bluefin, which is what we're talking about. And oh my God, so many diners crawled up my grill on this one. Like, how could mm -hmm. you serve bluefin on your blah, blah, blah? I'm like, oh my God, you realize how hard it is to harpoon a single bluefin? Like, she's in a freaking pulpit jamming this thing with a spear. Like you can't like this is not the big nets. This is not a matanza in the Mediterranean. This is one fish at a time. And it's it's an entirely different 
topic of conversation that we could get into, but like the whole thing about the sword fishery, I mean, you know, anybody of a certain age remembers that we are not supposed to eat swordfish period, end of story, because we killed them all. Well, that campaign worked too well because, you know, once the American sword fishery came back, everybody's, they can't seem to shift gears. <laughs> they like nobody, like they get this one kind of thought in their head and then that's that, that forever. Yeah. And it's tough. I mean, the oceans change with the tide uh, and right? fisheries change with the season and regulations change according to the best available science and economic needs. And all of this is constantly adapting. And we don't have that overarching, you know, father figure voice that when we ask what's for dinner, beef, it's what's for dinner. <laughs> we, we just don't we don't have that calming, soothing, proactive message in our head that like seafood, it's good for you. You should eat it. Um, and that's a big part of sort of the ecosystem into which disinformation flows. Uh, and I'm not claiming that the beef industry is, you know, uh, without its significant flaws. But the bottom line is we just don't have this sort of national consensus that seafood is this food we aspire to eat, that it is we understand and recognize that it is good for our bodies, as our own government recommends. We don't necessarily understand the impact that seafood fisheries and farms have on rural coastal cultures and, and communities. And I don't think that we understand that when we make our ethical decisions about what to eat and not to eat, that seafood is too often measured through the acute lens of is this seafood sustainable or not, rather than looking at it in the way that Americans use it, which is center of the plate protein. So is the pork, beef, chicken, lamb, veal, turkey, or salmon sustainable is the question. And when we look at it through that larger lens, you can rationalize our consumption by saying, wow, across five really important metrics from land use alterations, you know, how much forest is cut down to plant soy to feed the animal, antibiotic use, feed conversion ratio, meaning how much food goes into the animal to get food out of it, uh, fresh water usage and greenhouse gas emissions. Across all five of those really important metrics, seafood has a fin up in the sustainability game every single time. Hmm. Even so, with the issue of uh, the one issue that I, that I immediately thought of when you said that was, well, the, the issue of feeding fish to feed fish, you know, the the whole, you know, what do you feed salmon? You got to feed salmon fish. And doesn't that mess up the rest of the ecosystem? So that, yeah. that's something that a lot of us know about. But no, but <laughs> I think we just know enough to be dangerous. So explain that a little bit. Well, that is a, that is an issue that is being actively pursued and are there still actors that are way behind the times absolutely but there's also these incredible technological advancements and by tech i don't mean scary i don't mean genetic modification i don't mean weird i mean just hey why do we need to feed fish to the fish well it's to get the fish oil well why do we need fish oil well because it's fat and it's got omega-3s well where does that come from in nature algae Okay, can't we just ferment some algae and feed it to the salmon? Huh, in fact, we can. Really hmm. cool. And so now we're finding just these alternatives. And Hank, as I said earlier, like we've only been doing this for two professional generations. I mean, the people that started farming are just now kind of retiring from it. So, I mean, we're talking two generations professionals in this, let alone 
you know, dozens of generations of the salmon themselves, there's so much innovation yet to be tapped into that while, yes, there are issues at hand, there are solutions in the works. There are economically feasible solutions in the works. Um, and all of this going to say, back when you were talking about sort of the Long John Silver's model versus the Copper River model, we have to have both models. But the bottom line is that land animal proteins are artificially cheap. You know, it's not that fish is expensive. Seafood is rationally priced. Beef, you pay for once with our taxes and the subsidies. You pay for again, uh, you know, at the register. You pay for it again at the hospital because the American diet is making us very sick. And then we pay for it again with climate change impacts of which animal agriculture contributes 10 to 13 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. So you got a, begin, I mean, you have so, a cultural issue, too, like as, as exactly. a culture, uh, the vast majority of North America is not a seafood eating region. But it could be and it, it should could, But, you know, I mean, I can't I mean, I've spent enough time in the middle of the country to know that unless it's fried, they're just not interested. And, you know, it's just not part of the culture in a place like Wyoming. And I don't know that you could make it part of the culture. Like, I really don't, because it's just not, it, there's no, there's no nexus for it. Unlike, so I will count, unlike I will Northwestern New England. I will agree with you, but then also counter with the rise of sushi to say how utterly unlikely that was that a small restaurant in Los Angeles in the late 1960s would introduce raw seafood and that it would become something you could buy at Walgreens prepackaged, you know, that the idea of eating raw fish would become so prevalent in American economy and in, in American cuisine. The idea that we can't integrate seafood, I think you're absolutely right to point out that it is a challenge, but it's happened and it can happen. And innovations around freezing seafood and just the high quality that's coming now that Frozen seafood was crap. Let's just just admit it. But recent frozen seafood hasn't been crap for twenty years. Well, there's still a lot of crap out there, but there is now product out there that is inspiringly good quality. Yeah, and there and has been for twenty these, years, and I even I've been buying it for twenty years. You just have to know what to look for. I think what you're trying to say is that it's easier to find now. Well, true, true, and there's also market forces behind it, and you know people paying attention to the narrative of it. Um, back to the sort of the larger conversation point is seafood should be part of our diet, both wild and farmed, whichever you choose to put on your plate. Um, it is widely accessible. It is absolutely delicious, as everybody listening well knows. Um, and from a health perspective, it's like – this is why I am a seafood evangelist. I, just, I, <laughs> I, I, I can hear your voice. <laughs> I believe in the people behind it. I believe in the purpose of it. I believe that the purpose of a meal is to sustain the person that produced it and those that eat it. And what's your, that what's seafood your, is a powerful tool for us to achieve that. Step off the soapbox for a second and then put your chef's coat on. And so the last thing I want to talk about before I let you go is from a cook's perspective – um, there is a distinct difference between farmed and wild seafood that is sometimes real and sometimes not. 
Um, I would argue that the vast majority of chefs in the United States would automatically say that wild is better. And as a guy who has eaten close to 500 species of seafood in my life, uh, and I'm sure you're somewhere up there as well. Uh, I can tell you that sometimes you're right and sometimes you're not. <laughs> From my perspective, like bivalves, for example, um, you know, I mean, they are what their water is. And so the only good thing about farmed bivalves, other than what we've already talked about, is that you know they're not going to give you Vibrio because uh, they're tested. Um, but from my perspective, I dislike Atlantics quite a bit. Um, Atlantic salmon for me are bland and they're greasy and they're flabby. Now that's a personal preference because I know other chefs who hate Pacific salmon as being too strongly flavored or whatever, whatever. So I don't know that you can make any absolutes. Uh, statements about farm versus wild, but I'd be interesting to hear about where you think, oh, well, yeah, in this case, these are better. In this case, those are better. Uh, you know, Hank, I, I've always admired your take on things and how deeply you you research and think and, and live your topic. Uh, it's truly impressive. And it, it's rare to, to have the conversation about this that, you know, yes, there are differences. Um, the qualifications of better or worse are subjective in the vast majority of times. And um, you know, while I am a seafood expert, I am not your seafood expert. You are your own seafood expert. Yeah, I want to hear uh, you your know, opinions though, because I value yours. Well, I like some Atlantic salmon for some uses. And you're right to say that, well, Atlantic salmon is a variable category. I liken it to Pinot Noir. There are Napa Pinot Noirs that are, you know, vinified to 16% alcohol that are just like bowl of Dr. Pepper. You know, oh, wait, are you talking about a Lodi Zin? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just like, whoa, it's so overdone. And yes, there are Atlantic salmon that are just greasy. They're fatty. And you know what? I choose not to eat those. I don't like them. They don't make me feel good. It's just like I wouldn't want a five ounce piece of foie gras. Like it, it makes me feel the same. But then there's also Atlantic salmons that are farmed to almost resemble like pink salmon in their leanness and, you know, small flake. Uh, and those have their uses. They're absolutely delicious in a salad, but what do I prefer? I prefer something middle of the road. What do I prefer out of the Pacific? I like coho. That's my favorite. Second choice. Really? My, no way. My second choice is, is Kita. I like the balance. I think that those are right in the middle of the useful spectrum. Is king salmon good? Holy hot damn, it's good, man. I want to rub it on my face but I don't necessarily want to put a whole lot of it into my face. I am um, fascinated that you said silvers. Like they are my least favorite salmon of all. Uh, yeah. I find them the fishiest of all of them. All, I'm talking about all the Pacifics. Um, now a silver, like a real, real bright dog salmon, which is Kita TM silver, bright, whatever you want to call it. Chum. Um, I do love the really silver ones. Like you can't see the dog stripes on them yet. Um, so I agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to go, I mean, again, I'm, you know, this is my personal bias because I'm from California and what do we catch? We catch Chinook and the single greatest salmon on the planet, in my opinion, is a spring run salmon caught in the ocean that had only been eating krill, which is what you would catch right around now uh, here in California. Now, for those who are listening to this later is you know, where April turns to May. Like that mm -hmm. salmon is ridiculously good. Agreed. Agreed. 
And you I just like co-host because you can catch him with a hook and line. <laughs> I just like co-host because I'm the low liner on every boat that I'm ever on. So, <laughs> you know, co-hosts are just what I get gifted by whoever feels pity for me. So wow. let's just let's just let's just call it what it is. You know. <laughs> No, I mean, they're good salmon. I don't, don't get me wrong. They're better than Atlantic, at least. Although, so have you ever caught an actual Atlantic, like a real one? No. Uh, and in fact, I, I mean, it is punishable by law, uh, and even jail time to even catch one, let alone, uh. Well, only in this country. You can catch them in Canada and the, in yeah. the countries. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you walk down to my harbor here a couple of yards from my house and it's just like, do not, um, it's very, very clear. Did you no, hear I, they saw one in the Connecticut River like two years ago? Really? I yeah. I mean, and when I mean one, I mean more than one. I mean, like they saw a few. Wow. Yeah. So cross your fingers. I get your point. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it, like you and I can get into massive salmon geekery, and we're actually going to do an entire episode later this season on salmon geekery. Um, and it's funny because the Japanese do this a lot, like um, the farmed hamachi versus the wild hamachi which is yellowtail mm-hmm. if you're in this part of the world um i mean can you taste the difference because i can't uh, i i can't only in the greasiness of it uh ah, you know, the farm is the, fattier yeah i mean they grow that there have been some that i have seen that were claiming up to 37 percent fat content no way um, which is i mean that's, that's like egregious. That. isn't there um some trippy version of a lake trout in the lake superior that's that fat like the kokani or uh, something yeah, like K- that. Kokani yeah. is a is a um that's a uh a sockeye that lives sockeye. in lakes. Now there's Fire. a weird name for it. It's a laker, but it's this kind of a laker that can get up to like thirty percent fat all by itself. Uh, I I wrote yeah I, I you can I set it on fire. <laughs> I can't remember. Well, you know, and I mean, it's like the Ulican over, yep. you know, candle, candlefish. You dry them out, you literally can use them as candles. I just don't find that 37, I mean, even anything above 25% fat content is useful. You have to dip your fingers in ice water just to touch it because the heat of your fingers alone will, you know, grease the fat out of it and mess the natural emulsification of it from the body. So, you know, yes, I can tell the difference, but like in that case, are you serving me a single, you know, quarter to half ounce portion of it that's going to sit on my tongue and bloom into some etherealness of experience? Like, yeah, okay, cool. I get it. But if you're going to give me a five ounce portion of it, no, man, give me something with a reasonable fat content that's balanced, that's neutral, you know, and getting back to the wine reference, like, yeah, Zinfandel or let's take Cab. Cab is beautiful grape. That can do everything from austere, like English butler personalityed, you know, claret cabs, mm-hmm. uh, to everything to like the utmost exuberant Hawaiian shirt wearing California dude personality <laughs> of wine, right? But to say that one is bad and the other is like, no, it's all in there. Um, and I think each has their purpose. Um, I think there's another, I just thought it while you're talking about cabs. I, uh, in general, and I would be interested to hear if you agree. In general, I find that American farmed catfish, like farmed channel cats, to be consistently better tasting than wild ones. Only in the sense that you can catch channel cats in some pretty sketchy places. Um, and so, like, if you're going to have, you know, order catfish in some restaurant anywhere in the South, it's going to be American farmed. And if you fish the rivers right there, they may be good or they may not be good. And 
I have in general found that I kind of like the farm product when we're talking about, you know, an American channel cat. Yeah. Well, that's, this is true of all freshwater species. This is due to just the way they osmoregulate and you know, draw water into their system and salinity. And uh, a freshwater fish draws it in through their skin, whereas a saltwater fish, brackish, tend to draw it through their gills. Um, and so that flavor of the water, you had said this earlier, they are the quality of water from which they're from, uh, is so regular. And, and the American catfish industry has done so much work about water quality and off flavors and all of that. Um, so I agree with you. And it's just more consistency for anything else. And it's the same as you were talking about with wild versus farmed oysters. I will say that blue catfish, which are recently been introduced into the Chesapeake, where they are an invasive and highly detrimental presence. Wait, uh, I used to catch them in the 90s. Are you talking about recent in a galactic sense? Uh, recent in just in a, in, in a biomass explosion sense. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, so, so so I would have caught the, the pioneers back in like 97, 98? Yes, yes. We were, huh. uh, yeah. Um, like the snakeheads. But, uh, yeah, well, snakeheads being another threat, but, uh, you know, blue cats coming out of the, out of the Chesapeake and that brackish water, especially a little bit further south where you have a little bit more of the ocean influence. Whoa, I, damn, those are good. Oh, yeah, and, I mean, yeah. That is like compelling eating. That's not like, oh, we yeah, used okay, to this catch, is passable. Like, yeah, we used wow. to catch buckets of them. Like if you were to fish out of a John boat out of like Tappahannock, which is on the Rappahannock mm-hmm. River, but like exactly where you're talking about, it's right where, I mean, it's, you don't want to drink the water because it's a bit salty. You will catch a combination of those blue cats. You'll catch just about keeper stripers and then you'll catch croakers and you can catch them all on the same day. God, I don't know if they were blue cats or channels, but maybe they were blues, but they were about 18 inches long and then they weren't super blue, but they weren't any other color. I bet those were the blues that I was catching. Yeah, they, they are tasty. They're now fishing them with pickup trucks and like set nets off the beach. No um, way. Pulling in 60, 30,000, 60,000 pounds a set. It's insane. Whoa. So, so hey folks, <laughs> do your, do your country and your neighbors a service. Eat some wild blue catfish from the Chesapeake. Yeah. Park. I had no idea. That's an entirely different topic. So anything else you want to uh, hit on wilder farm before I let you go? Uh, well, hey, anybody that's stuck around this long, I appreciate you putting up with my uh, enthusiasm and evangelism for this. Um, uh, you know, I just hope that people will see it as an exciting category with potential to fit into culture, to fit into culinary, to yield new explorations and, and culinary opportunities. Um, and none of this to the detriment or to the exclusion of wild fisheries that there's a beautiful companionability to these these two and and should equally be celebrated in their own right um and bottom line is i think we should all be eating more seafood for some of the reasons i you know expounded upon earlier um of course because you need something to cook with when you buy my cookbook and your cookbook for god's sake (laughs) because you know everybody's going to run out and buy every buy both of our cookbooks as soon as they finish listening to this and then they're going to need things to eat with it right well luckily our our books are are compatible you know american seafood being the the narrative sort of description of every species land in the united states and your book being the user's guide on how and what to do with it all so yeah there you go and i really do love two if by sea as well it's a great book like i wrote Hook, Line, and Supper 
in a large part because most of the uh, fish cooks books that I had seen before I wasn't real fond of. And Two If By Sea uh, as a straight up cookbook is one of the few that I'm like, damn, that's a good book. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate saying that. There's, uh, there's no higher, no voice that I find a higher praise than yours for that. So, so if people want to find you. Fish friend. <laughs> so if people want to find you, um, where would they find you on this series of tubes we call the internet? Hey, I'm at, uh, at Barton Seaver on Instagram. I post, uh, you know, every now and then I go on hiatus as I am right now, but um, I'll come back to you. I post things about life, friends, family, mostly things about fish, though, and uh, check out the books where wherever books are sold, as you said. And, um, yeah, awesome. Well, thanks, Barton. Um, I will put a lot of the stuff in the show notes that we mentioned, um, some of the aquaculture certifications and some of the specific names and details and everything. And uh, until then, I will see you next fall. All right, friend. Take good care. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thanks to Filson and eFish for sponsoring this show. They help keep the lights on, and so can you. I have a request for you. On my website, there is a podcast link that has a link to every single one of the podcasts I have ever done. And on that page, there is a support the podcast button. This is a lot like public radio, where if you so choose, and I'm asking you uh, to make a donation or a contribution to keep the lights on here at the podcast. I do my very best to keep the number of sponsors to a bare minimum, which makes the podcast a lot easier to listen to, at least in my opinion, rather than having break-ins and ads and all kinds of things that you can hear on some of the other podcasts. So if you go to my website, which is hunttogethercook.com, and you look at the podcast link, you will see a button to contribute to help this podcast. You can do anything you want from six bucks, and I will mail you a bumper sticker to higher levels where you can get signed books and all the way up to, well, you know, the sky's the limit. So Think about it. Uh, it's not required. I'm not going to go off the air if you don't contribute to the podcast, but it would help me out quite a bit. Look for the next episode in a couple of weeks. And until then, I am on social media at Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram. I'm quite active there. And I run a Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook. It is a private group and you have to answer questions to get in. So just do that and say you listen to my podcast and there you go. And the core of what I do is always hunter, angler, gardener, cook. That is hunttogethercook.com, and you will find me and thousands of recipes that involve fish, game, seafood, you name it, all on hunttogethercook.com. Talk to you soon. Again, I really appreciate you listening. Thank you, and I'll talk to you soon.